Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to episode 16 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 6 of the Michigan Constitution. Every person has a right to keep and bear arms for the defense of himself and the state. The right to bear arms is a cherished right under both the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution as well as Article 1, Section 6 of the Michigan Constitution. But that right is not all-encompassing. There are restrictions which can be placed on that right. In this series of podcasts, we're going to talk about what your rights are under the Michigan Constitution, but also when the Michigan legislature can restrict your rights. But first, your spoonful of legal ease. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different articles section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll provide Michigan case law which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. We've got two cases to address because they truly constitute the bedrock foundation of our right to bear arms under the Michigan Constitution. These two are so instrumental to our right that they predate our current Michigan Constitution. But because so many court cases we're going to discuss rely upon these two cases, I want to highlight them for a basic understanding. Our first case is People v. Zarello. It is a 1922 Michigan Supreme Court case. Around 5 a.m. in September 1922 in the city of Detroit, defendant Zarello was seated in the driver's seat of a vehicle with four other men who had shotguns. It should be clear, Mr. Zerillo did not have a shotgun, but in the pocket of the driver's side door next to him, there was a 38 caliber revolver. It was possession of this firearm which led to his conviction. The prosecutors used a law on the books related to game animals, so, you know, like deer, moose, bear, to charge him criminally. But it should be noted, he was never alleged to have these game animals or to have attempted to have done so. So the question that the Michigan Supreme Court had to answer was, does the game law make it illegal for an unnaturalized foreign-born resident of the state of Michigan to possess a revolver? Well, the statutory provision at issue is as follows. 
It is a misdemeanor for an unnaturalized foreign-born resident to hunt for, capture, or kill any wild bird or animals except in defense of his person or property, and to that end, such a person shall not own or possess a shotgun, rifle, or a pistol, or firearms of any kind. On the recommendation of two citizens, the sheriff of the county, upon a showing of necessity, may issue a permit to an unnaturalized foreign-born resident to possess firearms. The defendant argued that the act, by depriving him the right to possess a revolver for a legitimate purpose, conflicts with the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 6, thus making the act unconstitutional. And again, Article 1, Section 6 states, Every person has a right to keep and bear arms for the defense of himself and the state. So the Michigan Supreme Court starts off making some very big statements. First, they declare that the Michigan legislature holds the right to regulate the carrying of firearms because this is a part of the legislative police powers. Sidebar. Legislative police power means the right of the Michigan legislature to create laws which promote and maintain the health, safety, and general welfare of the public. By and large, the Michigan legislature can make any law which serves the purpose of protecting the health of the people of Michigan, protecting the safety of the people of Michigan, or promoting the general welfare of the people of Michigan. There are restrictions which curtail the actions taken by the Michigan legislature, specifically the United States and Michigan constitutions, but I want to make sure you understood what it means for the legislature to have police powers. So not only does the Michigan Supreme Court say in 1922 that the legislature has the right to regulate the carrying of firearms pursuant to their police powers, the Michigan Supreme Court also held that the Michigan Constitution states every person like, for example, non-native-born citizens, have the right to bear arms. So they threw out the foreign-born versus native-born differentiation. Now, let me be clear. The Michigan Supremes said the people who are foreign-born must still be in the state legally, but if they're here as a bona fide resident, they will still enjoy the same rights as a person born and raised in Michigan. Next, the state Supreme Court held that every person has the right to bear arms for the defense of himself and the state. Sure, the court said the legislature can regulate the carrying and use of firearms, but what they can't do is make it a crime to possess a revolver for the legitimate defense of himself and his property. The provision in the Constitution granting the right to all persons to bear arms is a limitation upon the power of the legislature to enact any law to the contrary. Back in 1922, it's clear the justices didn't see the need to wax poetic for pages on end, and while I appreciate their brevity, they didn't give us any additional fact pattern background to explain why this fellow was in downtown Detroit with shotguns, nor did they explain why the prosecutor used a wild game animal statute to prosecute him. I mean, let's be honest, 1922 was a different time, I'll concede, but Maybe wild game animals were found in downtown Detroit. I don't know. But the real takeaway in this case was, number one, the legislature can regulate the carrying of firearms. But also number two, Article 1, Section 6 of the Michigan Constitution does protect the right of almost every person to bear arms in defense of himself and his property.
Next case, People v. Brown, a 1931 Michigan Supreme Court case. Now that we've established that Article 1, Section 6 of the Michigan Constitution does allow for the use of weapons to defend oneself, we need to get into some specifics. For example, what sort of weapons does the Michigan Constitution protect when you're exercising your right to bear arms? That was exactly our issue at hand in the 1931 Michigan Supreme Court case, People v. Bernard Brown. Mr. Brown was convicted of carrying a dangerous weapon, specifically a blackjack, in his automobile. He was also convicted of possessing a blackjack, which was contrary to law. At trial, Mr. Brown argued the statute by which he was being criminally charged was unconstitutional for violating Michigan's constitutional right to bear arms. Here's what the law said at the time Mr. Brown was charged with possession of a blackjack as a dangerous weapon. It shall be unlawful within this state to manufacture, sell, offer for sale, or possess any machine gun or firearm which can be fired more than 16 times without reloading, or any muffler, silencer, or device for deadening or muffling the sound of a discharged firearm, or any bomb or bombshell, blackjack, slung shot, billy, metallic knuckles, sand cub, sandbag, or bludgeon, or any gas-ejecting device capable of ejecting any gas which will either temporarily or permanently disable, incapacitate, injure, or harm any person with whom it comes in contact. The statute applies to all persons, except police officers, certain manufacturers, military, and licensed persons, and contains no limitations of place, time, purpose, or use. This act shall prohibit the possession of the enumerated weapons by anyone other than an accepted person, in private as well as in public, in the home or elsewhere, and whatever the purpose and contemplated use. So the Michigan Supreme Court starts out by giving a little history lesson to us on the right to bear arms. They explain that the right to bear arms has been placed in both the United States Constitution as well as our Michigan Constitution because of the fear the colonists had regarding a standing army being used to oppress the citizens of our state and country. Colonists believe there was value in a well-armed militia of able-bodied men to protect the citizenry from government. They also include an interesting sentence which comes across as a bit flippant. They said, and I quote, Probably the necessity of self-protection in a frontier society was also a factor to allow for the right to bear arms, end quote. Although the court acknowledges states across the country have debated under what circumstances a person may bear arms, our Supreme Court, in this case, reiterated that states do have the right to restrict the right to bear arms under the police powers given to the state legislature. They even gave a tip of the hat to our previous Zerillo case when they reiterate the right to bear arms extends to every person for the defense of himself and his property. But they also make clear the legislature's police power to preserve public safety and peace does mean that the character and ordinary use of weapons may be restricted, especially when you take into account how those weapons are traditionally used. The court said that the list of weapons deemed by the legislature to be dangerous was created to protect society from a recognized menace, 
They went on to say, the list does not include ordinary guns, swords, revolvers, or, quote, other weapons relied upon by good citizens for defense or pleasure. It is a partial inventory of the arsenal of the public enemy, the gangster, unquote. So you have this blackjack, which is specifically listed as being deemed a dangerous weapon. The Michigan Supreme Court comes out with their handy-dandy Encyclopedia Britannica and quote the definition of a blackjack as follows. A bludgeon-like weapon consisting of a lead slug attached to a leather thong. The more carefully constructed blackjacks contain a spring within the handle which serves to ease the effect of the impact upon the wrist of the one who wields the weapon. The blackjack has a reputation of being a characteristic weapon of urban gangsters and rowdies. And then that's it. They close out their opinion by ruling this statute does not infringe upon the legitimate right of personal or public defense. To the contrary, the court sees it as a reasonable and constitutional exercise of the police power of the state to curb crime. I highlighted this case for a few reasons. First, I just love the fact that they address gangsters and the mob of the 1920s and 30s. They acknowledge that Bugsy and Capone and, and his buddies were all big fans of using a blackjack to help others maybe see their point of view. And the Michigan legislature created a list of prohibited items certain goombas of the mob might be known to carry. But the other less godfathery reason I pointed out this case is because even as far back as 1931, the Michigan Supreme Court started building upon the foundation that the right to bear arms is not absolute. They are starting to shape the allowance, usage, and protections as afforded under Article 1, Section 6. And this is important because the next group of cases is going to rely upon this Zarello and Brown case. Next case, People v. Elau, a 1978 Michigan Court of Appeals case. Now, truth be told, I didn't find a lot of case law where Article 1, Section 6 had a slew of court opinions to read and discuss until I got into the felony firearm statute. The long and short of the felony firearm statute is that if a person has a gun while they're committing a felony, and if that person is found guilty of both committing a felony and having a firearm with him, then a mandatory two-year prison sentence will be imposed on the defendant, and that two-year time in prison is in addition to any other prison term they may have to serve for the underlying felony. Okay, here's what the actual wording is of that criminal charge. A person who carries or has in his possession a firearm at the time he commits or attempts to commit a felony is guilty of a felony and shall be imprisoned for two years. The term of imprisonment prescribed by this section shall be in addition to the sentence imposed for the conviction of the felony or the attempt to commit the felony and shall be served consecutively with and preceding any term of imprisonment imposed for the conviction of the felony or attempt to commit the felony. So let me give you a scenario. A person robs a gas station and has a gun. Here you have two criminal charges in one action by the defendant. The robbing of the gas station is a felony, but also having a gun with him while committing a felonious crime is also its own felony. Felony firearm means you commit a felony 
while having a firearm. So, going back to our hypothetical, if the defendant is convicted of robbing the gas station and if he's convicted of having a firearm during the commission of the robbery, he's got two felony convictions. And he's going to be sentenced to prison for some amount of time for the robbery of the gas station. But he's also going to be sentenced to two years in prison for having a firearm with him while robbing the gas station. This means even if the judge sentences the defendant to four days of prison for the armed robbery, the defendant still has to spend two years in prison for having the firearm with him while committing that felonious gas station robbery. I mean, it's likely that he's going to get far more prison time for the robbery of the gas station, but I'm really trying to drive home the point that having the gun on him while he commits a felony means he starts off with a minimum two years in prison. Two years for the possession of the firearm while committing a felony, plus whatever amount of time he's sentenced to for the felony itself. And that's what happens in the case here of People versus Badir Elau. Mr. Elau was charged with two crimes. The first was delivery of a controlled substance, <clears throat> PCP. Hey, it was 1978. That was the hip drug to use back then. And he was also charged with possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony. Here's what's going on with Mr. Elow. A Royal Oak police officer purchased $25 worth of drugs for Mr. Elow, which resulted in Mr. Elow's arrest. During a safety pat-down of Mr. Elow, the police found a pistol hidden in the waistband of Mr. Elow's pants. Now, it should be pointed out here, and this is critical, never at any time during the drug sale or arrest did Mr. Elow ever use or brandish the weapon. Therefore, Mr. Elow's attorney argued that Mr. Elow should never have been convicted with the possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony charge because the firearm was never seen or used when the felony drug deal took place. And the trial court bought what the defense attorney was selling. The judge at the trial court said there was never any sort of nexus or link between the act of possessing the firearm and the perpetration of the felony. But the Michigan Court of Appeals said, whoa, 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 back up the train here. There is not any need for there to be a connection between the felony and the firearm. The Court of Appeals believed that the statute, as written, was meant to apply to the situation at hand and no link was needed to establish or be established between the felony and the firearm. They pointed out the specific sentence which noted it applies to a person who, quote, carries or has in his possession a firearm at the time he commits or attempts to commit a felony, end quote. They said that language imposes no requirement of a link between committing the crime and using the gun. Having it on your person is sufficient enough. But then the Court of Appeals goes on into a policy discussion about why the legislature would create the sort of additional possession of a gun crime. They noted the purpose of the felony firearm statute was to deter the use of handguns during the course of a felony. This prohibition ensures the punishment of a person who possesses a handgun during the perpetration of a felony by punishing the possession of a gun versus the actual use of the gun. During the commission of a felony, the legislature is attempting to reduce the possibility of injury to victims, bystanders, and the police officers. If a defendant's criminal attempt goes haywire, he may well be tempted to use the firearm to try and escape. The mere fact that a criminal 
has a firearm at his disposal, should he need it, creates a sufficient enough risk to others that it is within the state's power to punish the possession of a firearm. Moreover, the statute, as written, may act to deter the felony itself. Again, it's the idea that there may be some prospective criminal out there who may lack the courage to attempt the crime without the added protection of a gun, thus resulting in never attempting the felony in the first place. The goal is deterrence of a crime when it's known bringing a gun will lead to a minimum of a two-year prison term, let alone all the prison time you would get from the underlying felony. For that reason, the Michigan Court of Appeals did not believe that having a gun on your person when committing a felony was a violation of your right to bear arms. You never have the right to bear arms to commit a crime. Okay, our next case, People v. Glenn, a 1982 Michigan Court of Appeals case, is a slight pivot from our previous case regarding Mr. Elow. In this case, Mr. Glenn was convicted on charges of assault with intent to commit great bodily harm less than murder and possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony. In 1981, Mr. Glenn stabbed his victim with an ice pick and repeatedly struck him on the head with a small caliber pistol. At the trial court level, the judge dismissed the charge of felony firearm against Mr. Glenn because Mr. Glenn simply used the pistol as a bludgeon, and that did not constitute conduct prohibited by the felony firearm statute. Essentially, the judge said Mr. Glenn didn't use the gun in the traditional sense of how a gun operates. He merely pistol whipped the victim by using the gun like a bat or a hammer or some other object which can bludgeon a person's head. Yeah, I don't know if this judge was a previous defense attorney or what, but the Michigan Court of Appeals would have none of it. Relying upon their decision in our Elow case, they again ruled that when a defendant has a firearm in his possession while committing a felony, or when using it to pistol whip someone, that conduct falls within the intended prohibition of possessing a firearm while committing a felony. Therefore, again, your right to bear arms is not protected for the purposes of stabbing someone with an ice pick and then pistol whipping them in the head. This next case, People v. Graham, a, another 1983 Michigan Court of Appeals case, will be another short review, but I highlight it because it relies upon both our People v. Elow and our People v. Glenn cases we've just discussed. Relatively similar fact pattern, but not completely the same. Mr. Graham was a drug dealer, and apparently drug dealers feel as though their business is a dangerous endeavor and their physical well-being can be in danger when drug deals go bad. Therefore, they have to arm themselves with their own personal safety. They should really work with uh, my OSHA to get these workplace dangers uh, dealt with, I guess. But at any rate, an undercover officer comes to Mr. Graham's apartment for the purposes of purchasing heroin. Now, here's where the story diverges. The police officer testified at trial that when he was in Mr. Graham's apartment, defendant Graham pulled out a revolver and pointed it at the police officer's chest. 
Mr. Graham then asked the undercover officer who sent the officer to make the purchase. I don't know if Mr. Graham wanted to thank someone for a business referral or what, but apparently the answer was satisfactory to Mr. Graham because he gave two packets of heroin to the undercover officer with his left hand while still holding the handgun in his right hand. Mr. Graham recalled the drug deal uh, proceeding in a slightly different manner. He conceded he gave the undercover officer drugs. That allegation he didn't find offensive. What got him all worked up was the pointing of the gun, which he said he did not do. He said he had possession of the gun when he let the police officer into his apartment, but denied holding the firearm at the time of the drug delivery and stated the reason he armed himself prior to opening the door was for his personal protection. The Michigan Court of Appeals found that whether he pulled the gun on the undercover officer or merely removed it from his waistband and placed it on the coffee table, as the defendant alleged, it's all irrelevant. Just having a gun on and around his person when he was committing the felony of drug sales was sufficient enough to satisfy the elements of a felony firearm. The court once again referenced both the Elau and the Glenn cases to buttress the idea having a gun around when you're committing a felony is going to make you guilty of the felony firearm statute. I'm next going to review People v. Powell, a 2013 Michigan Court of Appeals case because this is going to blow your mind. Here's the fact pattern and the procedural history for this case. Mr. Willie Dell Powell was convicted of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. So it's our beloved felony firearm law that we've been talking about. But he was found innocent of the actual felony. Yes, you heard me correct. He was charged with possession with intent to deliver marijuana, in this instance, a felony, and charged with felony firearm because he had a gun with him when attempting to transact the drug deal. He was found innocent of the felonious possession with intent to deliver marijuana, but guilty of possessing a gun while engaging in a felony. So how does that work, you ask? Well, juries are weird groups of people who do weird little things. And sometimes things like this happen. And as was the case here, the Court of Appeals have a tendency to support a jury's decision. In this case, our Michigan Court of Appeals said these two charges are two separate crimes. And although some elements of one crime overlap with elements of the other crime, a jury has the right to decide something one way on one case, but go in the opposite direction on the exact same element in another crime. The trial court emphasized that the jury was to consider each offense individually and that a jury in a criminal case may reach different conclusions concerning an identical element of two different offenses. The Michigan Court of Appeals found that the jury may have reached that conclusion that Mr. Powell was not guilty of possession of marijuana with intent to deliver, but that he did possess marijuana with intent to deliver under the felony firearm charge. Therefore, the Court of Appeals held, the jury's failure to convict Mr. Powell on the felony charge of possession with intent to deliver marijuana, but finding him guilty of the possession of a firearm while committing a felony is legitimate. You cannot have a gun on you when engaging in felonious actions. The felonious action was the intent to deliver marijuana, 
and he had a gun with him. That in and of itself makes him guilty of the felony firearm prohibition. Now that is a loony outcome. Okay, let's briefly step away from the felony firearms for a few minutes and talk about stun guns. These were very popular back in the 1980s when people either did not want or couldn't legally own a traditional gun. A stun gun is exactly what it sounds like. It's a handheld device which, when a button is pressed, has two electrodes which cause a ribbon of electricity to connect between the two probes, thus producing approximately 50,000 volts of electricity. One would then place the portion of the stun gun and its ribbon of electricity against an assailant's body, rendering him temporarily paralyzed. In People v. Smelter, a 1989 Michigan Court of Appeals case, a police officer stopped Mr. Smelter when Smelter was driving one day because the police officer knew Mr. Smelter had a suspended driver's license and should not be driving. The police officer placed Mr. Smelter under arrest for driving without a valid license and when conducting an inventory search of Smelter's car, found the stun gun on the front seat of the vehicle. It should be noted that back in 1989, Michigan had outlawed stun guns as it was considered to be too dangerous a weapon. But Mr. Smelter challenged the constitutionality of this weapon prohibition as he believed this should be viewed by the courts as a safer alternative than a handgun, as firearms have a far greater likelihood of killing someone compared to a stun gun. Be that as it may, the court believed the Michigan legislature has the authority via its police powers to regulate the type of weapon, regardless of how lethal it may or may not be. The Michigan Court of Appeals went back to the Michigan Supreme Court case of People v. Brown, our, our second case that we started this podcast reviewing, by saying that the state has the power to regulate the right to carry certain arms. If, in the eyes of the legislature, this weapon is seen to be unnecessarily dangerous, they can criminalize its usage. And with that, Mr. Smelter was convicted of possessing a stun gun because the court did not see a stun gun prohibition to be a violation of our Article 1, Section 6 provision. Our next case, People v. Yana, a 2012 Michigan Court of Appeals case is a tag-along to the case we just discussed, the smelter case with the stun gun. Now, remember, this Yana case is 23 years after the smelter case. It's 2010 when the following fact pattern occurs. The Bay City Police receive an anonymous phone call stating that defendant Yana was working behind the counter at a liquor store with a taser affixed to his belt. When the police went to investigate, they discovered indeed Mr. Yana did have a stun gun on his belt and he was ultimately arrested for it. He was charged in violation of the law prohibiting stun gun ownership and the trial court agreed with Mr. Yana that it did violate his federal Second Amendment right as well as his Michigan constitutional rights under Article 1, Section 6. So what happened in the 23 years between our previous case where a fellow was convicted for ownership of a stun gun and today? Well, two United States Supreme Court cases, one from 2008 and another from 2010. In the 2008 case known as Heller, this case made clear that 
Arms are anything that a man wears for his defense or takes into his hands to cast or strike another. Now, the reason why that definition is so important is because two years later, in 2010, there's a case, McDonald versus Chicago, which is another Supreme Court of the United States case. And they said that the Second Amendment is applicable to the individual states. Therefore, because the United States Constitution's Second Amendment guarantees the individual the right to possess and carry a weapon in case of confrontation, our Article 1, Section 6 extends to all instruments that constitute wearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of our founding. As such, our Michigan Court of Appeal said that stun guns may be used both for defense or to strike another exactly as defined in the Heller case. So to try and make this more clear, you have a United States Supreme Court case of Heller, which expands the idea of what the term arms means for the purposes of defining a weapon. Then the next United States Supreme Court says, uh, Supreme Court case says that the Second Amendment applies against the states and their restrictions. So if the Second Amendment expands what it means to bear arms, and that expanded definition applies to the states, we have to decide now whether or not the expanded definition is going to allow for stun guns in Michigan. Well, our Court of Appeals believed that the state has not shown there's any substantive evidence to disprove the argument that the vast majority of stun gun owners are anything but law-abiding citizens and are owned for lawful purposes. The Court of Appeals acknowledged that they previously held in the smelter case a stun gun can be used to temporarily paralyze someone, but there was never any evidence stun guns were regularly used by criminals. Our Court of Appeals here in Yana even referred back to the Brown case, weapons which are outlawed are usually those part of the inventory of a gangster. That's, to be clear, a second time making reference to a mob by the Michigan Court of Appeals. This court concluded that aside from the lack of factual support, the legal and factual landscape has altered in the last 23 years. They found that many police departments have added stun guns to their officers' belts because they are a less lethal alternative for officers when protecting themselves and others. Therefore, there was no reason to doubt that the majority of stun guns are used only for lawful purposes. Next, the Court of Appeals ruled that stun guns do not constitute dangerous weapons for the purpose of our Article 1, Section 6, which is quite different than what they found 23 years ago earlier in the Smelter case. But they also pointed out stun guns aren't an unusual weapon as 46 other states had made them legal. For that reason, the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled that stun guns cannot be prohibited from home use for self-defense, but they also ruled as unconstitutional the prohibition of what's known as open carry when out in public. If the owner of a stun gun wears their stun gun on their waistband of their pants for everyone to see, it is unconstitutional to prohibit that stun gun. At this point, the thing that may be allowed, and as of 2020, I don't know uh, what that answer really is, the remaining question is whether an individual can carry a concealed gun in public, concealed stun gun in public. But if you have it at home or you openly carry it on your person in public, you will be protected by Michigan's Constitution, Article 1, Section 6. 
That's going to do it for episode number 16 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Please reach out to me. I am at Tony Snyder on Twitter. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. Yeah.